welcome to another magical Saturday stream. I am your host, Joe Magician, and today we're going to be continuing our stream from two weeks ago where we talked about the others. I was like, I can talk about the others in general in just one stream. I can totally fit that into two hours. And then I got about halfway done and I was like, wow, that was like two and a half hours. So we're going to go ahead and try and finish off this topic or at least get more into it. Because the, the others themselves are kind of almost like the forgotten antagonists of A Song of Ice and Fire, where there's certain characters that are very concerned with them and trying to stop them. And then like another half of the book that are just like, who, what, what are those things? I, I don't care. I got my got my own shit going on. But that's kind of how that's kind of how it goes in A Song of Ice and Fire. The existential threat is being ignored by a lot of people. Weird how that happens. Almost like reality coming or it's like fantasy coming to life in our in our real world. But anyway, so yeah, we're gonna talk about the creation of the others, what we can what we can glean from the text, what the show told us about it, how those kind of line up, and sort of what are their motivations? Like what are they doing? Because we're not given a whole lot on on that front. So it's really left up to the reader so far, at least until the winds of winter or dream of spring, where presumably Bran will be telling us a lot more that there's not really a good answer for what the hell they are all about. So before you go, I just wanted to thank a bunch of people. Obviously, Aaron M in the chat. She sent a very nice uh, PayPal. I thank you very much for that, Aaron, and also for a bunch of people over the last week. I was talking about it in my Slack and kind of my Instagram, but my my only my only remaining grandparent died two Thursdays ago. So a little over a week ago. So been kind of a rough week. Thanks for everybody that reached out and condolences and stuff like that. Really appreciate it. It, it really did mean a lot to me. Also, Ramona Zamfir, she left a 20 pounds on the stream before it went started. So thank she said she couldn't stick around. So I'll catch you on the, the replay, Ramona. Thanks very much. And also Danny McKay, he sent in a $5 PayPal. Let me make sure I got this. Links for that in the description, or you can do super chats if you feel like it's it's whatever. It's up to you. Yep. Happy Saturday from Danny. Thanks very much, buddy. Yeah, no, no. No new patrons, I, I don't think. Thank you for everyone that is a patron of mine and you need support and all that stuff. Um, my eyes are a little bloodshot. It's not great. So yeah, thanks for everybody for continuing to support me in the channel. If you, of course, you don't have to, you know, give money to help me out. The most important thing you can do is stick around, watch, have a good time, subscribe, hit the like button, tell other people about the channel. That's basically all I really want. So you guys do that. Thanks. Oh yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks guys. Yeah. It's been a rough time. That's how it goes, I guess. So what's coming up for the channel? Dying of the Light chapter 13 will be coming out by the end of the month. That one's been delayed. I mean, there was several different reasons why it got delayed, but that's, that's just sort of how it worked out. And as we're going through the stream, you know, guys slam that MFN like button when we get to, what do we got? We 44 likes right now. When we get to 75 likes, I will give away a t-shirt from my Threadless shop or a gift certificate to my Threadless shop. So you can pick up whatever you want. You get the cost of it basically covered. I maybe just shipping. I think that's probably it. So yeah, if you guys are hanging around, if you like the content, slam the like button. And, and when we get up to, what is it? 150 likes, I'll put on my magician hat. It will be a good time. I thought, yeah, having a rough time, but you know, get back on that horse. Got to do something. And so with that out of the way, let's, let's turn back to the others, the spooky antagonists from the very beginning of the books who come out of nowhere and then just kind of disappear for basically a book. We don't see them again until Sam kills one, but there's a really good quote about them that's supposed to really set your expectations. And I think is instructive for talking about how they were made and what they really are. And it comes from all people in Tormund Giants, Giants Bane. Uh, he's talking to Jon Snow about them. And he has this really good quote that gives us a lot of information about them. 
about how the the wildlings understand them and what it's like living side by side with them. What are the, what are they really like? Because John only knows them as the white that tried to kill him. He has not he has not interacted with the others at all. So here it goes. Tormund turned back. You know nothing. You killed a dead man. I I heard. Man's killed a hundred. A man can fight the dead. When the mass when their masters come, when the white mists rise up, how do you fight a mist crow? Shadows with teeth. Air so cold it hurts to breathe like a knife inside your chest. You do not know. You cannot know. Can your sword cut cold? And that, I think that's sort of what George is saying is he very much makes them, when you first see them, they're terrifying, but they're also kind of, they just sort of look like icy elves or icy demons in a way. But this is Tormund really ratcheting it up that that is a side of them that we have been shown. There's this whole other side of this lingering, menacing, cold mist that hunts you and, and can kill you just by breathing and stuff like that. And I think I think that's probably more instructive on what they actually are. And we'll get to that during the stream, but and exactly what they can do. Lord Crackhead 33, I really hope they have the better origin in the books. I am sure that George will put in a lot more detail and all that other stuff in there. Although I, I am I did say this in the beginning. I do think that that the broad strokes of what we were shown in the show is probably true. Just a lot of the detail left out and, and I'll, I'll get to why. Don't worry about it. We'll get yeah, set those likes up. Thanks, Dave Zoe. They come west of Westeros. I don't I don't agree with that one. We'll get to more about the like the different stories about them and where they come from and that kind of stuff. But yeah, so what what exactly are we told in the text themselves about like where the hell did they come from? Like why did they show up? Even when did they show up? And we're really not told much. The, from old Nan, she basically just says they appeared from the lands of always winter. And that's kind of it. <laughs> that's that's the explanation we get of where they came from. They just arrived from the north, came down and started killing everything. And as far as the the northerners are concerned, they don't really know. They don't have an explanation of what their motivations are. They don't re they don't even really have like a story of how they were created. They just sort of exist and then started killing everything. Old Nan in her quote does say that, you know, the horrible winters came first. Let me grab that one. The others, Old Nan agreed, thousands and thousands of years ago, winter fell that was cold and hard and endless beyond all memory of man. There came a night that lasted a generation and kings shivered and died in their castles, even as the swine herds in their hovels. Women smothered their children rather than see them starve and cried and felt their tears freeze on their cheeks. In that darkness, the others came for the first time. She says their needles went click, click, click. They were cold things, dead things that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun and every creature with hot blood in its veins. They swept over holdfasts in cities and kingdoms, held heroes and armies by a score, riding their pale dead horses and leading hosts of the slain. All the swords of men could not stay their advance. And even maidens and suckling banes, babes found no pity in them. They hunted the maids through the for frozen forest and fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children. And that's that's really kind of it. It is just that they appeared. They were terrible. They killed a lot of people. But yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of kind of interesting because the, those are these are the stories that are the most locally relevant to the others. You know, other stories from different parts of the world that have to do with the long night are really off base. They're really ambiguous. There's a lot of localization to them, a lot of legend building in them, but not what old Nan says is basically true to what we see. And as far as she's concerned, as far as George is telling you, she's like, I don't know. I think that's kind of fascinating because as you kind of spiral out into different places, different cultures have explanations for the long night. The the people that were the closest to and the people that were hit the hardest have no explanation. There's like, yeah, it really sucked. 
<laughs> that's ba- if you want to break down old Dan's um, whole story there, it is basically a description of how much it sucked, not how or why it why it happened. We do get another story. Old Nan tells the story of the Knights King and the Knights. We talked about this in the last stream a little bit that they are presented in the story being told as showing up after the others that they came after their initial um, invasion in the long night, because obviously in the story, they say they are sacrificing to the others, which it can't sacrifice to something that doesn't exist. So yeah, they, and he was the Lord commander of the night's watch, which came after the long night, the night's watch defeated the, there's a lot of timeline stuff, but basically if you just take it at face value, you're being told that the night's king and night's queen did not create the others, but they were afterwards. And if you want to strip away a lot of the detail and a lot of the weirdness around the story of like, taking his seed and taking his soul. Their story is basically just the one of star-crossed lovers who went to extreme lengths to be with each other. And I do tend to think that that's largely a foreshadow for like John and Egret. That's basically their story. Knight's King and Knight's Queen is John and Egret. Rhaegar and Lyanna have a same kind of similar basic messaging that two people who shouldn't have been together were and it caused all sorts of problems. I tend not to think the Knight's King story is the origin of the others. I think it's something that came after, but who knows? There, there probably was a first White Walker as it was. We don't really know who it is. But again, these stories are so old and they're so George likes having them fray in the details as time expands. It's possible that that is the kind of the basic idea behind it. But even when you're talking about like the Knight's King and Knight's Queen story, you're not really given a lot of explanation for why they decided to suddenly become like super evil. It is just basically like he had sex with her. She took his seed. And then all of a sudden he turned into a nightmare king who started ensorcering his um, his fellow Night's Watchmen and he was sacrificing children to the others. It's like, why are you doing this? <laughs> like, what's going on here? It, it's again, I thought that was interesting reading these back. It's just like the explanations for how and why this is happening is just, is just not there. I don't even know what it means to take his seed from and his soul and why that suddenly makes him like a magical creature. There's a lot of people having sex in Westeros. Not a lot of them are creating magic from doing it. Uh, The closest one is obviously Stannis and Melisandre where she has sex with Stannis or it's implied that she does in the show. She literally does. And that creates a shadow baby kind of. Yeah, George loves playing with the unreliable narrator trope. That is definitely what's going on. He does not. He's he's obfuscating things and he's making them uncertain, which is fun. It, it makes it for a, for a fun read that you don't know exactly what happened and allows him space to fill it in later because if it's unreliable. He can change any part of it as he wants to to fit whatever cool idea he came up with his gardening style. And I think that's largely what's going on with the story of the long night, the creation of the others, the night king night queen thing where it's like it's it's ambiguous and vague and kind of it contradicts itself and he offers a lot of different explanations because Alexum picked the one he likes best when he wants to get to it yeah it is a blame the woman trope yeah that's kind of true yeah and and as far as the northerners and westeros are concerned that's it that's all they got they sort of think that maybe there's something to do with this guy called the knight's king and knight's queen but they're not really they don't know what the others are they don't know where they came from they don't know why they can do the things they can do they know they're just a threat they have to react to and that's kind of it when you look in the rest of the world of ice and fire and the rest of the stories from around the globe you get a, you get a lot of different stories that are that have a sort of monomyth idea to them i know eliana of girls gone can has talked about that a lot especially talking about like azora high and how it seems to be a similar figure 
that has a role in the ending of the long night but the stories of the of why the long night came about just get more and more wild as you go east when you look at the roinar they in particular basically do the same thing as the westerosi there's like we yeah it just kind of showed up. We don't really know what happened. And then they tell their story about how they have, they got all their gods together and they sang a song and it made the the long night and the, and the others go away. But they don't really talk about the others. They just talk about the long night. They're like, we made the long night go away. Um, it's like, okay, you get further east. Most of them don't even, most of the cultures, as far as we know, don't even have a story for why the long night came. They just sort of have a story of hero, magic sword, some kind who was involved with the ending of it. Different names, different characters. When you get to a shy, you have the story. I mean, when you get to, what is it? When you get to Valyria and you get to the followers of Rulor, they have the idea of Azor High and his magical sword and he tempered it, et cetera, et cetera. Even that is just the story of how it ended. That's not really a story of where they came from. They have the sort of idea that's just like the god of death and he did things. He's angry at us. I don't know. They don't really know. They don't have an explanation for it. The closest thing that comes to an explanation is from the far, far east from Ashai. You get the uh, story of the Lion of the Night and the Bloodstone Emperor, where basically the Lion of Night and the Maiden Made of Light, I think, came to Earth in some sort of, you know, they're, they're magical godlike beings. They had children. They became the gemstone emperors, that kind of thing. And the impetus, according to those stories, is that the Bloodstone Emperor killed his older sister, worshipped the magic stone, and for reasons that created the long night that there's not really a whole lot there if you get if you sort of break it down like you do with the night king and night queen story there is a similarity to it and there are certain resonances between that and like the story of azor high with he also stabbed the woman and that gave him magical powers or something like that but it's it's really just a story of like an original sin where it's basically saying like this guy did something really really evil and therefore the line of the night came and brought the long night and he punished all of humanity for his evil deeds, evil deeds. It's like, all right, well, I, I, that that's kind of, that's kind of the basic of that story. And yeah, that, that's kind of, but the thing, the, the thing that's fascinating as, as the stories get further east from Westeros, they get more and more diverged from reality. Like the Roinar, their story is basically just like, we don't even know what, they don't even mention the others. They just mentioned the long night that a long winter fell and then that they got together with their gods and they made it go away. You have other stories where some kind of darkness came in. There was a hero and then you get to the Far East and it's like, what the hell is this? This is so far divorced from from what we're being told by old Nan that and I think that's kind of on purpose that George is sort of telling you that there's there's been kind of a a long term like degradation of truth as you get further from the north. And I think there's a really instructive example of this directly in A Song of Ice and Fire and particularly in A Game of Thrones. A lot of people forget that one of the major things that gets people going is that big red comet that shows up. It shows up in the sky and basically every character that sees it and every culture that sees it thinks it's about them. They go, oh, well, th this is about that thing i believe this is about like our future this is that kind of thing it's indicative of x the thing that's local to them when it doesn't mean any of those things it's it's just a comma and um that's kind of what you can surmise about the stories of the long nights the long night stories across all of planetos where they all experience the same thing much like the red comet that is flying through the sky they all experienced a really long and hard winter and then they all locally tried to come up with like explanations for like what the 
hell happened? It's pretty on a very basic level. You can see this even in like, what's my favorite one? My favorite one is sports, like sports fans. There will be people who like watch their favorite football team, right? And they believe they have a superstition that if they don't do the same things when they're watching their team in their house, their team won't win. It's and of course, it's completely unsure what that person is doing has nothing to do with what's going on on the field. And it's kind of the same thing here. Why the long night fell does not have to have anything to do with why different people came up with explanations for it. And this is something that's very evident in especially in his urethra. I'm doing dying of the light where in a situation where there's low knowledge after a cataclysm on the planet that became High Cavalon, the people that survived basically made up stories to explain what the hell happened to them. This is going to be like light spoilers. This is basically just background info, so it doesn't really tell you anything. But in Dying of the Light, there was it was a human colony in the Thousand Worlds that a a species that humanity was fighting called the Harangans basically just nuked out of existence. They just dropped nukes all across the planet then they sent a bunch of plagues and then they sent down their slave races to try and kill everyone that was left there because it was close enough to their territory. But a few of the humans survived. And in the aftermath of that, they had to try to explain what the hell was happening to them after a few generations when they totally lost their their sense of history and their technology and stuff like that. So a, a particular example is in Dying of the Light in the High Cavalar Society. They have a, they essentially lock up all their women in underground caves and they call them Enkethi. I think that's the name of them. And the reason they do it is because the sorrowful plague came and it basically it was essentially bioengineered to wipe out everybody past puberty and humanity. The humans had no idea why it was coming, but they try to essentially assign a flaw in their society or some sort of sin they committed for why people were dying. They were trying to make sense of what was going on when they didn't understand it. So basically they they continued believing this thing about the sor- about the sorrowful plague and that it was some, some something they did that caused it. And to this day in their society, they continue the same thing. They keep doing it because they think it will keep it from coming back, even though it was totally unrelated. Whatever they're doing, the reason the sorrowful plague is gone is because the Harangas got defeated. It had nothing to do with whatever weirdness they were with law locking away their women or like all the other weird things they came up with their society. And it's kind of the same thing here with the long night. There's a lot of different explanations being given, but they're all local. They're all like people like it just happened and they had to go like, why? So they came up with explanations. Yeah, that's right, Scarlett. We love to assign causes to bad things. You see it in modern culture all the time, like when a terrible like uh, flood hits or like a lot of tornadoes hits, you'll see absolutely batshit preachers essentially come up with like, oh, it was the sins of of humanity that did it. It was this group of sinners that caused that when it's like, no, that's not really what happened there. But it's a popular idea and it's especially one that's popular in religions. Reckoning be safe from the others in Sothorios, maybe Olthos too. I mean, we don't know anything about them, the cultures that are there, so... Song of Ice and Fire is really, really focused on just Europe and Asia. We don't see a lot from Africa or Australia. We know that there's a, probably a Americos, I guess you would call it. Actually, Luminous Rain, that is the explanation given. One of the characters says that it was probably inspired by medical knowledge that like if there's a plague happening, you should probably lock people away so they don't spread it. Of course, that's not the explanation that that came in. They They understood it as a sin being visited upon them by the gods. And that's basically the same thing you see with the long night. So I I don't put a lot of stake into the stories of like 
how the others were created or why the long night came because there's it, it seems to be a lot of the same thing. Americo sounds like a soft drink. Yeah, actually, there's a there's a Stark that went west. And I think it was Brandon the Shipwright, I think was his name. And he went west and never came back. You know why? Because there's now Starks in America. Hell yeah. Keeping the colonizing going. I have seen suggestions before that maybe there was like a land bridge or something between Eastern Essos and Westeros or like on top of the lands of always winter. If it like it's snow capped and maybe the others went everywhere. I mean, there's maybe some suggestion of that in the the five forts and stuff like that that there was something that required another giant wall although i tend to think that that's probably just a actually somebody asked me about that and my thought on it was that the five forts was probably built kind of like a great wall scenario and just like the valerians essentially destroyed the oh god what are their names the the Giscari and essentially destroyed their land that's kind of what i think the campbell sands are but that's sort of my take on a lot of these ancient stories i think they're all pointing to the same thing that everyone experienced it and everyone had different explanations and then understandings of why it ended who knows which of those is true clearly the others came from westeros or at least that's where they are now so though and old nan's stories are by far the ones that line up the closest with what's we see from them literally happening on the on the page so those are the ones probably to put the most the most stock into <laughs> a long night comes when winter when winter fell falls it is interesting that there's kind of a, a switcheroo between oh i'm sorry we got to 75 likes thank you guys for slamming the mf and like button we're gonna do a keyword and for this if you want to win a free shirt from my threadless shop thank you guys again for slamming the like button type the word Hmm. What should what should be a type ice? No, wait, that that's a bad one. Type weirwood. Everyone that types the word weirwood will be entered to win a free shirt if you want it. We're going to change it for the next ones. I realized I was rolling for people that weren't there and they didn't end up claiming it. So I think that was my bad. Uh, Americos will do that for the next one. Yeah. So just type the word weirwood into chat and you'll be entered to win yourself a free t-shirt. Also slam the like button. We'll do the next one at 100 likes. Got 116 people so far. A weirwood. Weirwood. Not the word. Uh, a critical drinker does put it incorrectly. Yeah. Type that baby in and you'll win something for free. Uh, well, it's 2.38 right now. So at 2.45, I'll roll it. I know some people watch on delay, so it is fun seeing people just slam stuff in the chat. Yeah, 2.45, I'll go ahead and I'll roll and we'll figure out who wins. So I think that's my, I guess that's my... <laughs> I guess that's my hot take about like the ancient history and stuff about that, that I don't think most of it's meant to be literally true. I think it's George playing with the same thing he did in Dying of the Light, where he enjoys having the fog of history distort real events and that but he's clearly offering through old nan the clearest history of it and there's some other things that like don't make sense like i don't understand a lot of people kill their siblings or are kin slayers on a song of ice and fire they don't turn into she ice demons who can control the undead so i, I don't quite understand that part of it or worship or worshiping a black stone unless it's like obsidian or something like that which literally is a uh, literally magical oh not uh gray waste him not the gascari that there is another civilization up there that got wiped out probably by the ashai and left behind basically a totally destroyed world that they just obliterated it like using magical stuff because that's basically what happened to the gascari from the valerians where they essentially ended their ability to have a functioning civilization without them. They made, they sowed um, salt into the land and they made it so no crops will grow ba or basically very few and uh, effectively 
just wipe them off the planet so that there will probably be another, another there won't be another civilization that grows there there you know those kind of cataclysms do tend to happen in a song of ice and fire valyrians were knocked out by something similar that's basically my thought on it i mean it could be a signal that the white walkers somehow made it to essos but i don't know we're given another explanation that basically it could very well be another magical superpower that just wiped one of their neighbors off the planet. That sound that seems normal to me, or at least that seems that seems to make a lot of sense based on what we see. Yeah, plague chat talking. About, <laughs> yeah, talking about plagues. It did hit me when I was reading Dying of the Light. I was like, oh, reading about this during COVID is kind of kind of brutal. If anything, the most unrealistic part is that apparently everyone would that the high cavaliers wanted to stop the plague. Weird. So I think I think that's a good starting point to go from because that's I want to reiterate that we literally are not given a re on an origin story and we are not given an explanation for what they are doing. They don't say anything. They don't tell us. Nobody knows. It's just kind of like, ah, ah. I think that's important. I think that's on purpose from George that he wants to shroud them in history and mists. He doesn't want you to know so that he can reveal it later and that he wants to make it resonate with the rest of the book and like the rest of the human drama, essentially. So anyone that still wants to enter, you got three minutes left. Type the word Weirwood in chat. Do the others need the cold or cause the cold? Scarlet, I think it's a little bit of both. We'll get we're actually going to get to that right now. So I think another thing that's important, that's instructive for trying to break down, like how were they made is basically what can they do if you can find different resonances and similarities to other things in a song of ice and fire that we know more about it helps you to understand what they are so for the first thing that we're, we see that they can do is that they apparently have the ability to just hide in plain sight that they have some kind of like optical camouflage and they can become effectively invisible whenever they want and they use that to walk through the woods basically unseen whenever they feel like it especially with the fact that they don't leave boot prints when they walk through them like the elves do. We talked about that in the last stream. It makes it so that they could be anywhere and everywhere at any given time. There's no way of tracking them as long as they are around snow and ice and basically, I guess, in the woods or something like that. But I guess it would work anywhere. They can be invisible. That's an interesting power. One of the ones I don't think is talked about as much with them. And it's definitely not one that the, the show had. The show took did not make them invisible. They did not give them those abilities. They sort of they like the idea that they were physical and menacing at all times, which is which makes sense for like I don't think they really wanted to do the predator which is what it would have looked like on the screen so I understand the choice that they made but that is definitely something they can do they are they are stealthy and they are supposed to not be seen a second thing they can do is they apparently have control over the local weather and temperature around them this gets to uh, Scarlett's question about do they need the cold or they cause the cold I think they cause it and I think they cause it because they have the, they make their bodies out of ice and they can make swords from ice. I think that demonstrates that they have a sort of magical control over it, that they can form it and use it as weapons. I don't, it may be that they radiate it, but I think it comes from them, that they somehow have the ability to affect temperature around them. In particular, we hear from the opening prologue that one of the things that makes Waymar go, huh, is that it's really, really, really cold around them, but the wall is weeping, meaning elsewhere nearby, it's a lot warmer. 
which is a hint the others are nearby. It may be they don't have the ability to turn it off, but it definitely seems they have the ability to use the cold to as a weapon. Yeah, they bring the cold. It's probably one and the same. They probably they they create it because it helps them, but they have the ability to use it. Are they literally ice? Yeah, when uh, when Sam stabs it with the obsidian, it is, the body basically melts into water, and that's kind of the end of it. Uh, in the show, they have it exploding from ice, but it's the it's the same basic idea. They are made of ice. Uh, I can pull the quote. Oh, hang on, we're gonna do the giveaway right now here we go you ready uh three two one a sleeko duck there you go congratulations you will make sure you message me you can do it on twitter you can send me a dm you can send me an email at ask joemagician at gmail.com and i will send you a code so that you can win yourself a free t-shirt way to go sleeko duck didn't george say that others can do incredible things with ice yes he did and he demonstrated that with the sword where when Will is looking at it, he realizes it's sharper than any steel, which is telling us that they can create it. Let's let's see if we can find this quote. Sam rolled onto his side, eyes wide as the other shrank and puddled, dissolving away, and 20 heartbeats its flesh was gone, swirling away in a fine white mist. Beneath were bones like milk glass, pale and shiny, and they were melting too. Finally, only the dragon glass dagger remained wreathed in steam as if it were alive and sweating. So that's that's telling us that their bodies are literally made of ice. They are not wearing ice armor. They are not like humans walking around wearing an outer shell of ice. They literally are made of it. It's also noted in elsewhere that they only they they hide from the sun. They only come out during the night. The implication is they don't like heat, that they like being in the dark. They like being able to hide and they prefer it being cold in general and that they make it that way because they have the ability to. So they have the ability to control local weather and make it a lot colder. Jack Frost from Santa Claus 3. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Eric R. maybe a parallel to Sauron sending black smoke clouds in front of his army, disarm, disorient those he's marching on. Absolutely. It is a tactical advantage for themselves. They they use it to their advantage. They apparently have no problems walking through cold and snow and ice. Their enemies do. So they make it that way when they attack. So the their third power, they actually have quite a lot of powers, is that they have the ability to control the undead. In the last stream, I forget who told me it, but they, they told me about an interview George gave when he was talking about the other's powers, and he described them as essentially having like sort of a psychic beacon of sorts that from them, that's how they control the others. And I thought about it and I looked back at his other works and that's actually fairly similar to how he writes other characters or other antagonists, usually antagonists that can do this. Sand Kings, the Sand Kings themselves have a similar kind of ability. There's one central hive mind thing that uses psychic powers to control a whole bunch of mobiles, which are just basically like like little spider things or scorpion spider kind of lobster things. They're like weird little bugs. And actually, hang on, I can show you. This was a gift from Pat Spinoggle. He sent me a, a comic book version of Sand Kings, which is just terrifying. Here we go. Those are the mobiles the Sand Kings uh, control. That's basically what they are. There's a lot of similarities between Sand Kings and A Song of Ice and Fire. But um, yeah, that's fairly common. In Night Flyers, the same thing happens. Uh, there's a big spoiler alert for Night Flyers. But basically, there's a being that can use psychic powers to make the undead move. It essentially picks them up and moves them. It, it's a very common idea in his work. He loves the idea of the psychic overlord who can just control other beings to use it for them. Can the others slip on the ice? I don't know. Let's put up a poll. 
Let's throw this up there. There you go. <laughs> Let's figure this one out. It's also a present in a Dying of the Light, the Herning in Minds I talked about. They essentially do the same thing. They are brains underground somewhere that have the ability to control other slave races to do what they want. Very, very similar to what we're seeing from the others. The only difference is that the others have the ability to control dead bodies. That's basically the main difference between them and the Harangans and the Sand Kings, but it's that is a power that's very much present in Night Flyers. So I, I think you can read those books or those short stories and come away with a pretty solid understanding of what's going on with the others. How do they, how are they necromancers? How do they do it? There was also a history of Westeros stream a few weeks back I was watching and they were talking about, about this exact question, like how do they control the other, how do they control the whites? And discussion got to, well, if they're, how do, if they're controlling them just like puppets, how did they have the ability to know where like the Lord Commander's room was? And how did they know how to, who to kill in the Night's Watch when they sent back the whites? And my thought on it was that George has established elsewhere that the dead memories stick around in the bodies. Um, that's something we learn from the faceless men. When Arya puts on the ugly little girl's face, she absorbs her memories and the kindly man says that's normal. So you can absorb the memories from the dead. I'm guessing that's how the others did it. They, When they rode Jaffer flowers and Othor from the dead, they absorb their knowledge or they have the ability to access it. And that's how they knew where to go in the castle. It's not that they were resurrected as independent beings or as themselves. It's just, I think that's probably how they do it. That's my guess though. But George has been on the record of saying, don't think too hard about his magic system because he doesn't have one. Oh yeah, guys, make sure you slam the like button. 150 viewers. Hello everybody. How is your Saturday doing? Three more likes. We'll give away another t-shirt. The chat thinks no. The chat thinks 75% say the others cannot slip on ice. Interesting. This is the important concept. That would also make another good t-shirt, another like slipping on the ice and flying backwards or something like that. So that's power number three. Power number four is actually one that's not talked about a, a huge amount, but it is very important. And it's the Tormund quote I said at the top that when they're not in their physical ice bodies, they appear as a very cold mist that appears from any appears from nowhere and basically has the ability to use all their powers, but without a physical form to it. Uh, the Tormund quote I wrote, yeah, the Tormund quote I wrote at the top where it was like, how do you fight a mist? When their masters come, when the white mists rise up, shadows with teeth, air so cold it hurts to breathe like a knife inside your chest. And then after Sam kills the, the white walker he encounters, it dissolves into a mist as well. So this seems to be that there's probably two forms that the others can take on, that they are basically the ice demons that walk around or they can sort of appear as a angry icy mist. Oh, I'm sorry. We have to do another giveaway. We got to 100 likes. Thank you guys very much. Uh, keyword for this one is Americos. So I'm going to type it in chat so you guys can copy it. Type the word Americos and you will be entered to win yourself a free threadless t-shirt like this one. You can get it yourself. The spooky t-shirt, which used to be my old logo. You can get the new ones. You can get the uh, ass waffle gear, all that other kinds kind of stuff. So yeah, type the word Americos, which is the uh, continent to the west of Westeros. It's Americos. Yes, yeah, copy and paste it. I know it's a hard one to spell. So there you go. So it's 256 at 305. I'll roll it and we'll pick another winner. So yeah, also continue slamming the like button. We'll do the next one at 125 at 150 wizard hats going on. So that's an exciting one. I do love wearing my wizard hat. And the the mist thing is kind of, I'm going to get into this a little bit more in uh, just a few minutes, but 
the mists are very, very important in a way that's non-obvious. It's one of those things that when you read back, it makes a lot more sense. And of course, this isn't so much a power, but it is a, a magical fact about the others that they do have exactly one weakness, dragonglass or obsidian. You touch them with it and their bodies melt, their corporal forms explode or just get destroyed and they uh, dissolve into a mist of some kind. That's that's apparently what under, we're supposed to understand. What's unclear is if the other that Sam stabbed is dead forever or if it can come back and create a new body. And I think that there's reason to think that they do not die when you destroy their body that way. Uh, although the show definitely went the other way. And um, with the Arya stabbing the Night King with the, with the Valyrian steel dagger, that it did destroy him forever, that he was totally dead. Although I did make that video about maybe he's not so dead as we think. But um, the reason for this is that all these different powers taken together are very, very similar to green seers. Obviously, all these powers are things that they share in some way with the green seers and the children of the forest. So, for instance, the uh, the ability to appear from the trees invisibly whenever they want. We literally see Bran do this when he's using the Weirwoods to essentially spy on people, unless very, very often people do not perceive him. If they perceive him at all, it's as a whisper on the winds. Theon saw his face in the tree a little bit, but that was kind of it. So there's also the idea that, of course, the children of the forest have their dappled skin, which means that they kind of look like, you know, they kind of look like deer and stuff like that. They have a natural camouflage to them, but their powers, the ability to be a green seer is essentially identical to what the White Walkers can do, except the White Walkers do it in the real world, that they have the ability to hide themselves. Yeah, that's that's a pretty important one. I was thinking about that one like, oh, yeah, yeah, they, they can do the same thing. The When you think about the White Walkers all standing around watching the one dual Waymar, and there's a bunch of them just sort of hiding behind the trees, invisible watching, that's basically what the, the Green Seers do. Like to the rest of the world, that's what Brent, that's what Bloodraven has been doing for decades. That's what Bran does when he's spying on his father. That's what he's doing when he's looking in uh, Winterfell. All those other kind of things. Those are identical. Those are the same thing. Control the undead. So this is another thing that they share with the Children of the Forest and the Greenseers. Somehow the children control Cold Hands. Cold Hands is dead, and yet he's still walking around. And there's some speculation that maybe he's a cold white, or maybe he's a fire white. Maybe it's something similar to Beric Dondarrion coming back, or Lady Stoneheart. It's kind of unclear. We don't really know a lot about him. But yeah, the ability to control the undead and get them to do their bidding. Cold Hands. The Green Seers can do that too, in their own weird way. It's not identical unless Bloodraven is literally, unless Cold Hands is Bloodraven talking, which some people think he is, doesn't seem to, not that far off. New poll, can the others respond? In the show, no. Books, maybe. This one's a, actually the, the chat freeze or something? Hang on a second. I wonder if it's, I wonder if it froze because everyone was spamming Americos. Maybe. Undead Cold Hands will remain a mystery. We might learn a lot more about that in the Winds of Winter. Cold Hands is, it's unclear how he's alive. The show gave us the explanation that he is kept alive by obsidian in his chest, kind of like the Night King, the, uh, the image I used for the thumbnail. Um, unclear. Unclear if that's what's going on in the books of Cold Hands. But definitely the basic idea is, yes, the Children of the Forest and the Green Seers can also control the undead. So we're three for three so far between the Children of the Forest and the White Walkers being the same. 
Oh, super chat from, uh, no, 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 five Canadian dollars. Thank you so much. Jojen said the children of forest have gold eyes, but their green seers have red or green. Only ghosts and shaggy have red and green eyes. Other direwolves are gold. Why? I've had a thought for a while that the direwolves are reincarnated, that the reason they're all basically have this weird wolf green seeing power where they can all connect to their minds wherever they are is that they might be like reincarnated green seers or something like that but that's that's very tinfoily that's kind of my thought on it got a thug mug it's a it's a theory mug so i got duncan the tall on one side i got the house tarth on the other the union of the two in wood okay so three for three let's go for four. Oh, and that's two for two here from the tree is control the undead actually okay so the third one is psychic powers um, obviously the children of the forest using their second life powers or whatever can psychically control other beings that that is a fact of their existence the green seers can do that too they do it in a different way where apparently they it's un i don't think there's any green seer that has shown the ability to control more than one being at the same time but it's not that far off. It would just be a difference of scale, not a difference of ability. A fourth thing is this one's a little bit of a stretch, but it does make it does make sense once once you go through it. So the weather and temperature thing. Wait, the children of forest can't control the weather and the temperature. No, maybe not. But they can seemingly control. They have geomancy. They have the ability to control the earth. You know, the hammer of waters appears to be some kind of earthquake. They live underground in, in these big old tunnels and stuff like that. So it seems like, and the idea that, that geomancy exists in a song of ice and fire is just a matter of record. The Valyrians had the ability, their fire mages could stop the volcanoes from erupting. That's geomancy. So I wouldn't be shocked if the children of the forest had that too. So it's a, a a, storm, a form of nature magic, but they both have some kind of nature magic, basically. Um, and the last one, the one that, that I find so interesting is the the connections between the mists, where when you're talking about Bran's visions, in particular during his fever dreams and afterwards, that the idea of gray swirling mists is is used very heavily for implying that this is the, the green seers messing with something. Um that they are involved or they are nearby. It is nearly constant through his fever dream. It happens a lot later. And then the um, the most dramatic example, well, it also happens in Jamie's fever dream. He perceives everyone being formed out of mist while he's sleeping with his head against the weirwood. People have speculated that that was the influence of maybe Blood Raven or when the Green Seers messing with, messing with his brain. But you don't really need that one. It, it just kind of works nicely. The one that's really, really instructive is Theon when he is in Winterfell and he perceives Bran's face on the Weirwood tree and there's swirling mists and there's, you know, the wind on the trees and he thinks he can hear his voice. So George is essentially using that scene to backfill so that when you go back and reread it and you go look for whispers on the leaves and look for weird mists that appear out of nowhere. And those are apparently signs that green seers are doing something nearby. So when you compare that to Tormund's explanation that the others are essentially angry, cold mists that are always hanging around and that the mists do often appear when the others are around seems to be kind of one and the same. George is using in both cases the mist to signify their arrival, both kinds of beings. Are we sure that the others can't just walk out of the trees or they actually walk hundreds of miles at the right time? It's unclear. They could, when we see from uh, Veramir Sixkin's death scene, where, he, oh, I'm sorry, I have to do a, a giveaway. I'm going to finish this question, but we're going to do the giveaway. Remember, it's Americos. I was going to post it in the chat again. Last, last call for free shit. When Veramir is essentially detached from his body, he has the ability to fly through the air like 
ridiculous speed. So it is possible that they have the, the ability to move wherever they want and then just like create their bodies there. But we're going to get into the why I don't think they can do that in a little bit. But I think they are just essentially walking around at all times. They're just always in the haunted forest. And that's why it's haunted. It's haunted by them. But I think the the point of these comparisons to make is that basically there's very little difference between the powers the Green Seers show and the powers the others show. And I think that's on purpose, that they are basically one in the same. All right, here we go. Let's roll it. Tymar Smith, congratulations. You, sir, have won a free shirt to my, my Threadless shop after the stream is over, or you can do it right now. You can DM me on Twitter, or you can send me an email at askjoemagician at gmail.com. I'll send you back a code and where you can go spend it. Way to go, buddy. And I think that's important because I think that sets up the idea, a very simple idea that you're supposed to see them as reflections of each other, that one is coming from the other, that the others are sort of like a souped up version of green seers or that they are some like a weird perversion of green seers gone to a, a complete extreme beyond what the children can do. Like if you weaponized a green seer, you would end up with the others if you took their powers as far as they could go. And so I talked about this a lot in my children of the forest stream I did a while back, but I think that the timings for this, for the children being responsible for the others, makes for a very easy narrative to follow and one that doesn't require a lot of tinfoil and a lot of evidence gathering and a lot of, you know, it, it's it's something that you can just sort of walk through and understand it every step of the way. Isn't Westeros George's version of America? Sort of. It's closer to, I think, the Saxon invasion of the Gaelic cultures that were there. Westeros is England, Ireland, and Scotland all jammed into one. West America exists to the far west, basically. So yeah, if, if you look at the timings of the history that we're shown it, it yeah it just it makes a nice fluid story for you to follow so what happens first the children of the forest are in westeros they have the weirwoods they have control of the entire continent they're the only ones there with the giants who they went to war with sometimes the first men cross the arm of dorn um unclear why but they start settling there they start cutting down weirwoods and they begin killing children of the forest and the giants the children of the forest are understandably upset about this and go to war with the humans for quite a long time and at the end of it to end the conflict the children of the forest do what's called the hammer of the waters there's a lot of speculation about what it is exactly but the results are not up for grabs the results are that the arm of dorn was broken and possibly the neck was broken into the swamplands that we see today. I think this works very well with the idea that they have earth magic, that these were that the idea of waking giants from the earth is just earthquakes, that the children somehow pooled their magic in whatever way possible and created earthquakes or possibly volcanoes, which shattered the arm of Dorn and the neck. And they sort of did this as a last resort that they essentially did. It's like a big demonstration of power to cut off the, the reserves coming from the first men and to essentially be like, we need to come to some kind of agreement here. You guys have to stop. That's that's right, Robert Smiley. Like, share, subscribe. Thank you, buddy. So what happens after the hammer of waters? Well, it slows the first men. The war kind of comes to a standstill and we learn about the pact. Here's the quote about what it is. If you haven't heard of the pact before, they forged the pact. The first men were given the coastlands, the high plains and bright meadows. <clears throat> the mountains and bogs, but the deep woods were to remain forever the children's and no more weirwoods were to be put to the axe anywhere in the realm. So the gods might bear witness to the signing. Every tree on the island was given a face. And afterward, the sacred order of green men was formed to keep watch over the Isle of Faces. The pact began 4,000 years of friendship between men and children. In time, the first men even put aside the gods they had brought with them and took up the worship of the secret gods of the wood. The signing of the pact ended the dawn age and began the, began the age of heroes. 
So if you want to do a less like uh, fairy tale version of that, the children essentially pointed a nuke at the humans and said, knock it off or we're just going to destroy everything. Mutually, mutually assured destruction. We will destroy this place if it means you don't get it. So they came to agreement and over time, the children used the weirwoods to take control of the first men so that they were effectively under constant monitoring and they could they used it to effectively create a moral structure and groups of like sins that help them that the taboos within first men culture are largely to help the children survive <laughs> to leave them alone and to make sure that they don't cut down the weird which is kind of funny it's sort of like the children trick the humans into worshiping like surveillance cameras they're like look the surveillance cameras are your gods you can't cut them down don't do anything bad in front of them or else the gods will come and get you Knowing full well the children of the forest are the gods uh, that they mess with them. So yeah, the the but the if you break it down into the, a very basic way into what exactly happened was humans showed up, started messing things up for the children, threatened their survival, and then the children did something very extreme magically to survive and to force a peace. And then after after the humans were like, all right, sorry, we went too far. They came to agreement and basically ceasefire and they went their separate ways, coexisting, but not at war anymore. So that's that's a very simple way of explaining the uh, the creation of the pact and all that other kind of stuff. Okay, so then let's look at the Andal invasion. I know this is kind of a very hotly debated subject. I'm just going to throw this out there. I think it makes the most sense that the Long Night happened at the Andal invasion, that the others were not the hammer of waters that they came later. Reason number one, the first men had begun worshiping the Weirwoods. They had, as I said, they'd been tricked by the children into believing that they were gods and not them spying on them. So at this point, they'd basically pacified the first men. They had a long-term peace. They had a stable structure going. The first men wouldn't step out because they were afraid of the weirwoods, which were them. They could use their magic to screw with them and keep surveillance and keep themselves alive. Okay. So there's no reason at this point to really do anything drastic in response. Things are going not perfect for the children, but good. Things are stable. They're going okay. Reason number two, part of the pact is that no more weirwoods would be cut down, that they would be left alone in the deep woods, like nothing else would happen to them. The Andals show up and say, fuck that. We didn't agree to that. And we're going to start just doing whatever we want and whatever they want included killing tons of the first men, killing tons of the children, cutting down the weirwoods in giant numbers, destroying their holy places, uh, notably High Heart. Uh, there's the Andal King, Eric the Kinslayer, who showed up and cut down all 31 weirwoods. That's kind of a bummer, a direct violation of the pact. And it's also directly threatening the children of the forest, since we know that they live on like underneath or near the weirwoods. So the very, very few of them that are left are being slaughtered. Okay. Reason number three, the children found themselves again in real danger of extinction and losing all their trees, which to them are essentially all their ancestors and knowledge of history and want you, you cut down a weirwood and it's like taking away their pa their past like literally it's like taking away their past also they found that they could not control the andals who were religious zealots for the seven unlike they could with the chill with the first men they couldn't f they tried to trick them they tried to use their magical powers they tried to use the animals so the andals weren't going for it so there thus we have the motivation for why the children would do something extreme again like the first time it's survival they think they're about to be all killed they think they're going to lose all their weirwoods. That's a good reason. So from there you have. So if you follow the pattern, what happens next? They do something extreme and magical 
in order to essentially overwhelm the humans and get them to stop and to force a peace or at least a ceasefire that works in their favor. And I think that's kind of what where you get the, the the creation of the others, that the others are the Andal inv- invasion version of the Hammer of Waters, that they are a defensive measure to halt what they saw as the extinction of their race. You can sort of see it as like kind of like a, a Faustian barge, a bargain, making a deal with the devil or doing something just totally self-destructive to the point, but it's something you felt like you had to do. That it's it's way, way, way over the top, you know, making a deal with the devil, the, uh, the devil being the others here. Um, I think the story that's actually probably pretty instructive of where the others came from is most likely the this is one of my favorite pet theories it's the that the story of the warg king and the if you guys don't know the story of the warg king he ruled from sea dragon point in the wolfswood next to the starks and he and his people were all humans but they had been given at a very high rate the powers of the green seers and skin changers that they were essentially somewhere between the uh, somewhere between the children and the humans that they were they were highly highly gifted that they were like the chosen of the children and the story goes that the the war king and the starks of winterfell fought and somehow the starks ended up winning and they essentially went through and committed a genocide on the followers of the war king they killed all the men they could find they stole all the women and forced them to marry their sons and cousins and the members of their household and stuff like that. There's definitely a suggestion that the Blackwoods of the of the Riverlands are descendants of the Warg King because the timeline kind of matches up. And actually, I was thinking about this before. There's a lot of ambiguity about when the Blackwoods actually showed up in the Riverlands where they say they were there first, but then the Brackens say they were there first and the Blackwoods took their land. Well, if it happened right around the Andal invasion and the Brackens, I believe, are Andals, it would make a lot of sense if it, there's a lot of confusion about they basically when exactly they showed up and who was where first. If it all came during like around the long night. Now, when you're talking about the, the Ward King, probably some of them survived. And if you're talking about High-powered green seers who are very, very upset about something. That sounds like the kind of people that you would be able to tempt with kind of this devil's bargain. If you could say, like, we'll give you the power to get revenge on the people that wronged you, the rest of humanity, to give you back what you had lost, that kind of thing. Those are the sort of people who are who have the powers to do it, but they also have the motivation. Just like the total loss of their people. I'm thinking about like. Imagine yourself if you're like one of the followers of the Warg King, you're one of the members of his family, this clan that lived in the woods and the Starks came out of nowhere. The two you guys went to war and you're the only one left or it's like you and a small band of people that have run as far as you can and you have you have no hope. Everyone you know is dead. All you have is hate in your heart at this point. Boy, that sounds a lot like somebody that would take whatever the children offered them. You know, there's a lot of good motivation there. So uh, th- that's kind of my thought that I'm guessing the others are probably descendants of the Warg King or that story is sort of the story of where they came from, because that's that's kind of one of the stories you get from the world of ice and fire that the maesters think that the others essentially came from were a, a very violent band of humans that came from the far north to invade and that they weren't actually magical. 
Well, that kind of motivation fits very well if there is some people who survived the the slaughter of the War King's people. Oh, I'm sorry. We have to do another giveaway. We got to uh, 125. Let's go ahead and do another one. So type the word Raven into the chat. If you guys want to go ahead and win a Threadless shop, a free shirt from my Threadless shop. Raven. Type Raven. There you go. 150 we'll put on the hat that is by no means canon that is basically that is just a theory but i think it's the one that makes the most sense um that they are if you're talking about the fact that they seem like green seers and they have a real bone to pick with humanity and they seem to be relatively recent yeah the ward king's followers and the ward king himself if if he managed to survive the uh, the slaughter of the starks would make the most sense for where they came from. Of course, the other hint that the children made the the others is that the others have a failsafe that uh, so oh sorry, it's 323 so at 330 I'll pick another winner. The others have kryptonite. They have the ability to die at the touch of obsidian. And who is the race that uses obsidian in Westeros? It's the children. It makes it makes perfect sense that they empowered this these green seers to essentially be like super weapons that they send against humanity. And then they made sure that they could stop them. They made sure that they were vulnerable to their weapons so that they could always kill them if they wanted to. Of course, that appears to have gotten way out of their control at this point. But you can see that that, that's an obvious thing to do. You put a stop button on your Terminators. You have the ability to control them or destroy them if you need to. And of course, there's the other thing that the children have the ability to create these magical barriers which the others can't cross. So the two things the others, the children are known for are things the others are weak to. I mean, it just, it just makes sense. Like in a rock, paper, scissors way, if you're making a creation, you make sure that you're the ones that can stop them if you need to. So how, how were they actually like created? There's different versions of this in George's other works, in particular Night Flyers. He loves using the idea of magical crystals that can control psychic souls. Basically, they're called whisper jewels or they're called, well, sometimes there's like crystalline computers or something like that. He has them in all his different stories. He loves the idea of it. So if, this is why I don't think the show version is probably that off base, because the idea of using obsidian to create a magical race of psychics is a George idea. That's the kind of shit he comes up with. That's what he writes about. He writes about it all the time. It's very much not the kind of thing you'd expect Dan and Dave to come up with. Their sort of fantasy imagination is much, much lower, I would say. They tend to stay much more towards grounded ideas. That's a very much high fantasy idea that... that you shove like obsidian into someone's chest and it turns them into a monster. That's a George idea. So I don't really have a problem with the idea that the children used obsidian in some way or they they transformed human green seers into becoming the others. And you can sort of see the idea with with Verimir Sixkins when he is freed from his body in his death before he goes into the wolf. There's sort of this idea that he can just sort of fly around if he wants to. That that green seers, if they were sufficiently powerful enough, they could exist outside their own bodies. They be, they could become essentially like sentient angry mists. That's that sounds very very similar to what we see about the others, like kind of an angry sentient mist flying through the air. That sounds like them. That sounds like what green seers can do. Oh, that's a good call, Christina. I think it's not that off base because. Because they showed it and then never touched it again. Yeah, that sounds like something George probably told them. And they were just like, oh, 
all right, I guess we'll put it in. Uh, we don't really know what to do with it. This isn't the kind of thing we like writing about. So we're just going to kind of ignore it, but we're going to put it in because that's how George told us they were created. I think there's a lot of like weird fantasy stuff that came afterwards that may not be true to the books, but I think that one is probably closer than the rest of them. Yeah. So that's kind of my thought that somehow the children created using magical means. I don't really know how. Again, this is George saying like, don't worry about magic crap because it's not going to make sense because I don't have a system. In his mind, I think that he just imagines that they are like he has this idea in Night Flyers that there are different levels of psychics that like there's like a level one, a two or three and a four. And we get up to like a three or a four. You become like telekinetic gods. You become almost like Tetsuo from what's that? What's that uh, movie? Akira or something like that, where the powers can get so extreme. They allow you to do things beyond just like moving things around with your brain or reading brains. It allows you to become like I I guess a sentient mist or something weird like that. So I'm guessing that's basically what behind it. I don't have a problem with the idea that obsidian's involved. It seems to be their kryptonite anyway. It would make sense if they were created with it. They could be destroyed with it, that kind of thing. And we're going to finally talk about the idea of Craster. So Greyways Tim asked this for the last stream, and this came up a few times. He said, one mystery is what would be done with the sheep Craster left for the White Walkers when he didn't have sons to sacrifice? He goes on to say about ice spiders, but this is not, this is a question that came up quite a lot. What the hell's going on with Craster and his sons? Why? How is he leaving them out? What is that doing for the White walkers and why would he leave sheep i think the explanation that makes the most sense is that like all magic in a song of ice and fire this has been a a running theme that all magic is blood magic that human sacrifice blood sacrifice is essentially what makes their world go round it seems to be an unalienable fact that to cause magic you have to use life and i would very much i think that if you think about the idea that they are sort of like sentient angry cold mists that sometimes have bodies, it probably makes the most sense that they use the children given to them by Craster and essentially like suck the life out of them and use that to manifest themselves or to refresh their bodies or to create them or to create new ones. I know that in a in his initial pitch letter, I think he called them the unborn. And that would make a lot of sense if it's the idea of potential of life being sucked out and destroyed to create them. I think the example that makes the most sense in A Song of Ice and Fire, though, other than Stannis, where when the I mean, that one makes a lot of sense when Stannis is used to create the shadow baby, he becomes visibly older and Melisandre describes it as drawing off his life fire. So to create the magical shadow being thing, Stannis had to give up some of his life. So I think that's kind of what's going on here. But I think the example that is also directly on the nose for this is that what the Undying were trying to do to Danny when they trapped her in their weird temple thing and they were, you know, licking her eyeball and like grasping at her. She describes it later that they were trying to drain her. And I think that's basically the same thing that's going on here that you that they need sacrifices, that they need children or people or animals to essentially rip the life from to create their own soul crystal psychers. What is this Warhammer 40? Yeah, those all come from like the same weird ass 60s and 70s fiction. Um, George and the guys that made Warhammer 40K all doing the same kind of thing. Although fun fact, I learned about Warhammer 40K. It's supposed to be Starcraft, but they messed up the licensing and the deal 
but they just went ahead with it anyway. That's why there's space Marines. That's why there's essentially the Zerg. The elves are basically the the Protoss, that kind of thing. Anyway, far off topic. So yeah, I think that's the idea. And the, that's the reason that they can take the sheep when they he doesn't have sons to give them. That the idea is that they just need life. They need to drain life to sustain or create themselves. And sheep will do, but they would prefer to have children. I think that's the idea there. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. All right, let's go ahead and roll this baby. We got uh, 26 people entered. Last call. I'm sure George is a Warhammer fan. He loves tabletop games. He has a whole collection of them. If you ever see his videos on his house tours, he just has a ton of miniatures. He loves painting. He loves playing them. So I bet he's a Warhammer fan, maybe Warhammer fantasy, but I bet, I bet he loves 40 K or at least knows of it. Maybe he doesn't like the, the rules. They are very complicated. All right, here we go. Let's roll this baby. Who's going to win Other thing from my threadless shop, Jara T. Congratulations, Jara. Go ahead and send me a DM on Twitter, or you can send me an email at askjoemagician at gmail.com and I'll send you back a code and where you can spend your money. Congratulations. Thanks for uh, subscribing and entering. So I think, I think that's the, I think that's the answer to what's going on with Crasher's children that I think that Gilly ha- and the rest of the wives have a sort of a misunderstanding about what the children are being used for. They, it may be that they because they get carried away and then they disappear and then the others show up. I doubt they do whatever they do to the children right in front of them. They seem to go other places to do it. So I'm guessing they are, in a sense, Craster's sons or they're like being possessed in a way that they their life is being used up by the others to, to create themselves and to power their abilities. I mean, when you look at the Weirwoods and the Children of the Forest, there's definitely a suggestion that Bran is, has uh, engaged in cannibalism from the well, he definitely has. He's eaten Night's Watch Ranger already, and there's a suggestion from Jojen Pace that he's eaten Jojen too, and that the Weirwoods demand blood sacrifices, and it all seems to work in the same way. Like when you look at the Weirwood at the White Tree Village, inside its mouth there were bones, and children's bones. The idea of giving humans and children to the Weirwoods is a known fact of this of the series. So the idea that the same thing works for the others makes a lot of sense to me. So yeah, I hope that does that make sense? Do you, I hope it does. It's it's a little convoluted, but I think it all I think it all lines up in a logical way that the children made them somehow obsidian makes sense for how they would do it. I don't think Dan and Dave would come up with that on their own. It doesn't seem like kind of their it does it's not their style and it's not their imagination. It's very much George's though. And that that the children made them essentially as a weapon against the and all invasion, that they saw the end of their race coming. And so and so they empowered these green seers, human green seers, to create to be the others who they also held the essentially the off button for and pointed them at the Andals and said, go. That and the idea would be the same thing they did with the hammer of waters. That the other would threaten the humans, beat them down, and then the the children would approach them or they would approach each other and they would use the others essentially as a way to forge a peace between them, which is basically what happened. The story of the last hero. I mean, the stories from Essos largely have like Azor Hire, the prince that was promised with his flaming sword going out and defeating them in sword combat. But the last hero story specifically has him going to find the children in order to ask for their help. Well, if it would make a lot of sense if he went to them to forge a peace to get them to call off their their dogs to call off the others and make them and to essentially redo the pact 
and say basically like, you guys are going to stop your expansion. We're going to keep what we have. You're going to keep what you've taken. And that's it. It seems to be very much the same story as the, the first pact and as the as the hammer of waters. Same exact strategy. It makes a lot of sense that they did the same thing twice, but they felt that this time they had to go over the top. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for giving her the email. Yeah, Jared, you can just email me and I'll give you uh, I'll send you back the code and where you can use it. Yeah. And they just they just drain the children. They use blood sacrifice, as does every other kind of magic in this world. So that makes the most sense to me. I do like the idea, though, that that the children in their desperation made something that was beyond their control, that they thought they had them under control, that they thought with the obsidian and the barriers that they would be able to essentially call them off whenever they wanted or destroy them. And it seems to be seems to have gone very wrong for them that they that the others have much like Frankenstein's monster have grown beyond their control. They fucked up and now they're having to deal with the fact that the others are not only just coming for humanity, but they're coming for the children that they're not only coming coming for their creators. I mean, they're only coming for the rest of life, but they're specifically coming for their creators probably because they can just destroy them or they have the knowledge of how to do it. So they need to eliminate them. I mean, the fact that you look at Blood Raven's cave and that's just surrounded by whites, essentially right outside the barrier, putting them under siege makes a lot of sense for why they would do that. It's not it's not just that the children are life and they want to exterminate. It's that they know the children are dangerous to them and that they made them into this cursed, weird life thing that they are, because that's often a very much a common theme in George's work that he loves the idea of somebody reaching for magic and power to solve some kind of problem and then being very unhappy with the results that they didn't quite think it through. They didn't understand what they were getting into. And now they're trapped. Uh, Scarlet McCain, parallel to the Doom of Valyria. Yeah, very much so. That the idea of the Valyrians that they thought they had the slaves that they took under control and the volcanoes and they all they just lost control and ended them. That that works very well with other parts of the world. But it's also the idea that like, you know, we're told very often within a song of ice and fire that you know magic is a sword without a hilt. That if you try to use it, it's going to bite back and that you're not that you're very much you can't predict how bad it's going to go for trying to use it. And it should be the same for the children as it is for the humans that they push too far and now they're having to deal with the backlash and find themselves unable to. That they basically, oh, that didn't work. Sorry, I meant to mute that. I did not mean to cough into your ears. I'm very sorry about that. Bad. And you're welcome, Jared I'm glad you enjoyed here. Can the others kill dragons, though? I want the dragons to be an equal and opposite power. I mean, perhaps. I mean, they're just magical beings. So who knows what would happen if they interacted? Maybe they throw impossibly far ice spears and kill dragons that way, I guess. I don't even really know what happened there. Yeah, the javelins of doom. I don't know. I doubt they have come to contact very often because essentially the others have been unwilling to leave the lands of always winter for thousands of years at this point. If the Valyrians were aware of them, they made no note of it. They based, they they seem to have an idea that there may be something evil to the north of the wall, but they didn't know what and they didn't really interact with them. The dragons certainly seem to be spooked by kind of other magic, but they're sort of set up as the biggest magical force in the story at this point that is going to take everybody else pooling what they got to stop them. And I think 
one thing that goes beyond their motivate that goes beyond how they're created. I think an important part to think about is their motivation for why they're doing this. I didn't really like the show explanation that they were just trying to erase memory. I don't really know what that means. I mean, if it just means exterminate the children, I guess that kind of makes sense to destroy all the weirwoods. That's that's not really like a core reason to do something. You know, if you want to erase memory, there has to be some sort of memories you're trying to destroy. If you're trying to end life, there has to be something that happened where you think that life is a bad idea, that you feel betrayed by it, that you want dominance over it. It's that's yeah, that's a solution, but it's not really the problem. What are the, what's the, like, what's the problem the others are trying to solve for themselves? And Eliana of Girls Gone Canada and I talked about this a while back on a patron episode uh, talking about, you know, what's what's the line cripples, bastards and broken things that that Tyrion talks about and how that idea seems to be so core to how villains are created in A Song of Ice and Fire and how George imagines them, that they aren't just like evil, discordant things like Morgoth, who just sort of are evil, that they should have something, some reason behind it, something that has happened to make them that way or that um, there's some flaw that they're trying to create correct basically and that's not really present in the show and i don't think the answer was given to us then and i think it has a lot more to do with this stuff like yeah like the feelings that Tyrion has about how his father has disregarded him and how he's treating him like a subhuman how even though he should legally be the heir to cashley rock he won't get it and everyone thinks of him a monster that whole speech of himself in the about how he'll be the monster that people want him to be that kind of thing the rage that Jon snow has about rob and how he's a bastard and rob's not and how that makes his life even though like it's very much a first world problem john's life is objectively pretty good but he doesn't perceive it that way he feels the he feels the pain of being a second class citizen in his mind that he's not he's not whole he's lesser than the rest of them you look at the idea of second sons and jealousy and all these other kind of things that those are how you end up with villains like that's one of those things that i think that people underrate about a song of ice and fire is that george considers Tyrion a villain or a villain in training and that always surprises them because they think Tyrion's a protagonist or a hero or something like that it's like that's how george creates villains Tyrion's arc is how he creates villains people who feel scorned and left aside and cheated by reality. You know, the list goes on and on of characters who feel that way. Ariane Martel feels that about how she's being passed over for her sex, that she feels that Quentin's going to get everything that she deserves. Just both feel those kind of feelings, that there's a sense of a life lost to them, that there's something missing. And I think that is such a ever-present theme and running idea with George's characters that that's kind that's that tends to be the motivation between the worst things that characters do at a very very basic level that i would be shocked if that wasn't what was driving the others that i don't think that they are just kind of like inhuman she ice demons who just want to end life because it offends them or something like that. I think that I think that the reason that George is writing that consistent idea throughout so many of his characters is because it's eventually going to be transferred onto the others so that you don't you don't have to have to have sympathy for them, 
but empathy to understand where they're coming from that, you know, they probably did not sign up to be what they are now that maybe the children promised something, a bargain that they didn't understand that they have, that they're just sort of raging against their, where they are at this point, rather than rather than like some sort of generic evil end life thing that they feel angry, that they feel betrayed, that they feel like humanity has, I would also love it specifically if it had to do with the Ward King and that their focus on the Starks is because these are the same guys that the Starks destroyed so many thousands of years ago that they're still carrying, you know, the pain of loss, the pain of seeing those they love killed before their eyes and destroyed by the destroyed by their enemies. That's a very, very powerful thing that even if you live a few thousand years as an ice demon, I doubt you would forget. I think that's the part of of their creation that I'm most excited to see. I am. Okay. So we talked a lot about like physically how they were created. I really want to see their psychology in the winds of winter. I want to see from Bran's perspective, how he understands how the children did it. He's probably going to, he's probably going to go back in time and see it. Um, I feel like the others have to be a magical manifestation of someone's wrath in the same way dragons were for the Targaryens. Yeah. I think that's kind of, kind of similar to what I'm saying that they, they are humans. We know they, they act like humans. They act like human green seers. So there should be a human reason behind what they're doing. Like, even when you look at Ramsey Bolton, Ramsey's a monster. He's a mass murderer. He's a rapist. He's torture. He's one of the worst people in the books. But George even goes out of his way to, oh, hang on a second. 150 likes at time. Knocked over something there. Woo. <laughs> all right. What's this, baby? There we go. Thanks, guys, for slamming the like button, hitting the subscribe button, and all that other stuff. Oh, thank you for the uh, super sticker from Michael James. $2. Thanks, buddy. What looks like a happy controller that's sort of that's sort of my guess overall that the main difference between the show motivation for the others in the books is that george didn't put a lot more effort into showing us their backstory and why they feel the way they do like for instance Ramsey is in particular motivated by the knowledge that he is a bastard and that Roos essentially abandoned him that he's trying to be the most boltony bolton ever in order to please his father, in order to be kind of worthy of his name to prove that he's really his son, that he's worthy of his love in a way. And that's kind of the underpinning behind the horrible, horrible things he does. I mean, other than just being like a general sociopath, it definitely seems like that's that sort of backstory for Ramsey for why he's trying, why he's doing horrible things to please Roos. There should be something like that for the others, that there is a real sense of griefment behind them, which we don't have yet. That's sort of the point I was talking about with the whole with the the first like third of the stream, the first quarter of the stream is that that's all missing. We don't have that. We don't have a reason for why they're doing this other than they are and how they're doing it. The why is missing. And I think George is holding that back in particular and that he's using the rest of the POVs and characters in order to lead us to their cool motive, still murder. That's true. I think that's exactly right. Cool motive, still being terrible. So some of the questions we got from last time, and if there's anything I missed in the chat while I was talking, you know, go ahead at me, bro, at Joe Magician, throw some questions out there if I missed it, if I skipped it. And we're going to do the Q&A here thing till four and we're going to get out of here. So the question from Careless Koi on Twitter or a CVan 16. 1620. 
Is there something that the people of Westeros can give the others to appease them? Is there a diplomatic trade solution? I've heard the idea that if they just keep giving them children, they'll stop. And I don't think that's I don't think that's um, on the table. I think the others aren't going to stop until they destroy all life. That the way they are created and probably the depth of the emotions behind them makes it so that they they can't stop. They will not. They are going to keep going until they until they kill the children. So they wipe out humans and they're the only ones left. So I don't I don't think there's a deal to be struck there. There's no like, you know, you can't give them back. <laughs> you, you can't write that wrong. Those people are if they're like the descendants of the Ward King or something close to that, some sort of aggrieved party that were destroyed by the first men so long ago or outcasts or maybe just like a group of like bastards and second sons that were that were tricked by the children, then you can't unring that bell. They're they're going all in. They are not stopping. There's no going back for them. They the die is cast as it were. Oh, super chat here from no 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 no. Another five Canadian dollars. Thank you, buddy. Maybe Brian or another kid like Anthony Fremont in It's a Good Life from the Twilight Zone. It even ends with him bringing winter out of anger. Uh, I am not familiar with what you're talking about, but thank you for the super chat, buddy. Uh, this was a question from Delena or John's Woe, John's John's. I think it's John's Woe or Dong of Ice and Fire on Twitter. If the others were in fact created by children of the forest, how or why did they lose control of them? What do you think the children of the forest imagine their specific purpose of role as in the fight against the first man? So to answer the second question from Del- I definitely think that they were used as a tool to force peace, that they were trying to stop the human invasions into their realm, that much like the hammer of waters, it was sort of a show of strength that they were trying to, in a way they couldn't before, force a peace by extreme overreaction. Um, that seems to be their thing. And is there some, and if they're, how or why do they lose control of them? I think it's because when it's the sort of a basic thing, kind of like, I think it was said to Cersei by Tyrion about like, once you put a crown uh, on Joffrey's head, you lost control of them. That's kind of what the children did. Just because they have the ability to kill them doesn't mean they have the ability to control the others at this point. That they're intelligent, they are powerful, and they will find ways to get around whatever kind of cage you tried to put them in. It's like the same kind of problem you see with in a lot of sci-fi literature about like AIs that go rogue. You're fighting against something intelligent. It's gonna try and break whatever constraints you put on it. So I wouldn't. I, I that's kind of where I fall on that one. That over time it was just. They figured out how to use the children's um, cage they tried to put them in against the children. I think that George takes a kind of Disney-esque message method to problem and villain creating. If moms weren't all dead, life would be better. I think it's just that, well, I don't really... There are some characters that are just like seem to be evil for no good reason, like Euron's on that level. Nothing really happened to him. He's just this way. Bruce Bolton's the same way. There's no real understanding of why he's such an evil prick. He just kind of is. So I don't think it's that all villains are created that way, but he definitely likes when he can giving empathy and reason for why um, villains are the way they are or why evil characters have become that way. But it doesn't always go that way. Like some characters who experience the same kind of pressures that like Ramsey does do not turn out the same way he does. I don't think it's like a hard and fast rule that all trauma creates villains or something like that. But it is definitely an idea that he likes to have when for a lot of his villains, why they are the way they are. I guess to I guess to wrap it up. Oswin Hole. 
if the others were like a rogue AI and a threat to all the world, why wouldn't the children seek out humans to tell them how to destroy the others? Aren't they doing that right now? Isn't that what they're, they got brand for? I mean, and they acquired Bloodraven. It seems to be that they're, they're trying to help humans stop them in some way. I think they are definitely trying to stop the others. So they just don't know how. And like there's that package they gave the, or it's theorized that the package that John found with all the obsidian daggers was a gift from the children and the arrows with them, that kind of thing. Yeah, there's a lot of dead moms in Westeros, which, well, actually, a, a lot of George's villains tend to come from bullying and being outsiders in society, which is, he's written that in a lot of his books because that's, that was his life. Most regular humans don't have the toolkit to stop them. Yeah, it seems to be, oh, hey, okay, how's it going? Oh, I'm sorry you're in pain. Hope you feel better. He definitely has a lot of moms dying childbirth, like a lot of them for a drama and stuff like that. So a question from, uh, I think, I think I answered this one, or did I, about the others crossing the wall and how they're going to do it. Oh, yeah, I did talk about this. I don't really know. The Horn of Winter one, I, I don't really know because they did blow the Horn of Winter if the, if it's the one that John found and nothing happened. So what do they have to do different that they didn't do this time? I know poor Quentin likes the idea that he's going to climb the high tower and then there's something magical there that's going to cause it to happen or Euron will. I don't know about the show's solution. That may have just been like a filling in the blanks thing where like maybe George told them that the White Walkers acquire a dragon and they're like, how do we knock down the wall? And they just kind of made the two happen at the same time. Because that whole thing felt like very, it felt like a problem solving plot rather than a natural one where they needed things to happen. And so they just kind of filled in the blank with the white hunt thing. I would be surprised if it went down like that in the, in the books, but I don't have a, I don't really have a problem with the idea that dragons could destroy the wall. They're magical beings. So maybe they could. Yeah. But if the Horn of Winter is broken, it's how are they Who's going to fix it? How are they going to fix it? Who's going to even recognize it? I don't really know. It, it's it's a very convoluted thing. It's going to happen very fast if it happens at all and the wind's a winner. There doesn't seem to be any characters that are aware of even how how you would use the Horn of Winter or even know what it is. So it's one of those things where I'm not really sure. Oh, uh, Super Chat or Super Sticker from Karina Strick. Three, four New Zealand dollars, I think. A very cute Shiba. Thank you. And a $10 super sticker from Carolina Blues. Thank you, Pear. Thank you. Appreciate it. Let's see here. Oh, yeah, I definitely did talk about that one before. Let me scroll up, see if I missed anything. We got a few minutes left here. Throw them in the chat. Basically attempting to allow someone to rewrite history with legends so they can continue to exist. <sighs> yeah, I don't really understand the show explanation. It's I think it's a thing that sounds cool, but I don't really understand what it means. Like, why would they want to erase memory? What does that do for them? It also seems that they have a grudge in particular with Bloodraven, then Bran and the children in general. If they're just mad at children, I don't see why they're executing humanity in mass. And uh, uh, there's something else there that I imagine George will put into the Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring when we get there. Gerald Garcia says humans trespass in the other's yard, aka north of the wall. They're basically a guy from Grand Dream. Well, there is definitely a sense that the others think of everything north of the wall as their territory. That they sort of see the the the, the tribes and the people there essentially as as livestock for them because they have to use them they have to use their children or it seems they have to use their children in some way to refresh themselves like that's got to be the reason they haven't executed everybody because they need a living population to provide them with children you know if they actually just in a, in a way it kind of almost seems like a suicide pact if they're really going to go and eliminate all humans and if they actually do need life to sustain themselves then 
maybe it will, it will just they are including themselves in the end of all life thing or something like that oh my children are promised to the great old ones oh no put them through the snow gate huh it, yeah the, the others have a thousands of years if they really want to go whole hog and and destroy everyone north of the wall they just they aren't. They haven't. So there has to be a reason for it. I think the fact that they use them essentially as livestock makes the most sense. I think that's kind of I think that also works with with the idea that they can use the sheep, that they don't really see a difference between the the babies they get from Craster and the sheep. They're all the same thing. They're just essentially um, food for themselves. It's also what is it from a time machine from I think from Jules Verne or something like that. The idea in the far future that there ends up being a very white walkery kind of like future race that uses normal populations as their as their food. It definitely was in the movie with what's his name? Hang on a second. Guy Pierce, I think, was it? I imagine they changed quite a lot for that movie, but they had a Jeremy Irons playing the weird future psychic human thing. I wouldn't be surprised if there's also a little bit of that in what George was writing. Yeah, Jeremy Irons as the Morlocks. I, I, I imagine George does love classic stuff. So if he kind of imagines the other's relationship to the wildlings as the Morlocks, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, it looks exactly like a White Walker. It, it looks like the show White Walkers. That's definitely probably where they got their prop inspiration from. The book ones look very different. They're much more like ice elves, but I would not be totally shocked if that's what he was, if that's when they were doing like production meetings, they're like, what the hell do these things look like? And they're like, I don't know. What about the Morlocks? Like that Jeremy Irons weird guy. Oh yeah, those look cool. Catherine first, first. Verseth? It doesn't make sense for Sam to have the Horn of Winter unless he will find out something about the City of Bell about its use. Yeah, that, that's kind of the, the get out of jail free card that George has in his pocket. If he wants Sam to be able to use the Horn of Winter correctly and repair it somehow, he's put him in the place to do it the most. He's put him in the Citadel with all the collected knowledge of Westeros. So if he wants to have Sam open a book and research the Horn or come across something about it and how it's supposed to work. That can work as a plot point. It's just like right now, it's hard to see how that would happen. Like, and even if he did understand that it would bring down the wall, why would he want to do that? The, the motivation problem is, is not there. You essentially have to be like, Sam would have to learn how to fix it, do it, and then I guess lose it to Euron, who would then know how to use it and want to, and then does. HG Wells, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm not that good on, on those kind of classics. I thought it was Jules Verne, but you know, I get them mixed up in my head a lot. Uh, if it comes down to a magical treasure hunt to defeat the others, like we see in fantasy stories, Harry Potter, Mary Sarlon Thorne, maybe once Sam finds more info, I would be really surprised if it actually came down to a MacGuffin hunting fight to, to destroy the others. Like, George has already introduced how you do it. It's obsidian or dragon steel or Valyrian steel. The weapons are there. You don't have to do anything crazy to do it. The information has already been presented. So how much, how many more MacGuffins does he need? Oswin Holf, Blackwoods are descended from the Ward King. Doesn't that sort of put Bloodraven on the same side as the others? Well, no, because you can have different members of a family that are different from each other. Like just because the Lannisters are all the same family doesn't mean they're all have aligned interests and they hate each other. And the Starks have fought each other in the past. Like there's evil car Starks, which are basically the same. There's also the Grey Starks, which were the enemies of the main Stark family from uh, White Harbor. So it wouldn't put them on the same side, but it would make a lot of sense for why George decided that Bloodraven and House Blackwood has this key part in, in the end of song uh, in the Green Sears and the Three-Eyed Raven and the other plot line. Otherwise, it's just kind of random, right? It's it's just like aesthetics. Why, black, why the Blackwoods? Is it just because of the Ravens? That's kind of a pretty weak reason to choose that house to be Bloodraven. 
Raven's origin story. Whereas if it has something to do with the ancient past of the Blackwoods and the Warg King and something like that, then that kind of connects in a satisfying way. It's Tyrion as, yeah, Tyrion as dwarfism. Yeah, I think so. I really think I missed that part of the conversation. All right. So I think that's probably about it. I'm just going to check PayPal one last time before we get going. If I missed anything, I did. Did I? Oh, I'm sorry. There's a PayPal here from $5. Oh, hang on a second. I'm going to have to log into the site to see this. I'm sorry. I, I missed something. During the week, Jeffrey Stern sent me a few PayPals as he was watching a bunch of stuff. I want to say thank you for those. And you just sent another one for $5. Let me log into this real fast so I can see the message. I would not put George on being medically accurate to any sort of condition that is outside of his purview. $5 from Jeffrey Stern. Isn't it interesting that the horrors the old man ascribes to the others are all things later done by humans in the story? Ramsey hunts women, manually feed their feed family to the phrase. The way old man is also wrong about the wildlings being a cruel monolith. Yeah, I think that's actually a really insightful point that the others are presented as this inhuman monsters that would do things no human would ever do, that they are a blight on humanity, that they are going far beyond anybody else. And then, yeah, as Jeff Jeffrey just pointed out, everything they do is done by humans later. So I think it also drills back to the point that the origins of the others are in humanity and that they are basically the sins of Westeros coming back to haunt them, which if you wanted to connect it to the other like stories, particularly the idea of like the Bloodstone Emperor and the blood portrayal and all that other stuff. Like that's basically the idea behind it. It's that there was an original sin or some sort of wrongdoing that and that the line of the night or the long night was essentially a punishment for it. That would make some sense for kind of a way to understand the others. But yeah, great, great call, Jeffrey. Like that one. I wish I had thought of it. It's a great, great point. All right. So I think that's probably about it. I uh, want to thank you guys for coming out and hanging out with me this Saturday. Thanks, everybody, that all the new subscribers, everybody slammed the like button, all you guys that hung out with me. And if you were one of the people that won one of the shirts, make sure that uh, you send me a message on Twitter or as a DM, or you can send me an email at my uh, public email at askjoemagician at gmail.com. I'll send you a code and uh, a link to the store so you can go spend your, get yourself your free spooky t-shirt, your free asswaffle stuff, or the current, or the, uh, the magician hat stuff, all that other kind of stuff. So, yeah. Thanks, everybody. Hope you had a good time and I will see you in probably about two weeks. I think so.